This episode was filmed prior to the COVID-19 crisis. For someone who might be in an all-white environment, having teachers of color allows them to have a human connection with someone who identifies differently than they do racially. Persistent school have lower rates of, of suspension and perform better on standardized exams. That, that, that happens when um, Black and Latinx students have someone in their classrooms who look like them. And there's also some growing research that suggests that white students prefer having a teacher of color. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher. I teach in the Los Angeles area. This is my 16th year in the classroom. And this, of course, is all of the above. Your home for news and analysis of all matters pertaining to the world of education. If you are watching this on YouTube, thank you for tuning in. Please consider subscribing and hitting that thumbs up if you enjoy what you're watching. And if you're listening to the podcast, thank you for doing that. And uh, please take a moment when you can to uh, rate us and review us because that that does a lot for us. And that would really help us get this uh, show out to other educators and those interested in the world of education. Jeff, what is on the agenda for today's episode? Well, Manuel... As always, we got a good one. And always. I, I have to say, those who know me know that I'm not a dancer, but our two guests that we have coming on to help us explore this yes. fantastic, fascinating topic today make me want to do a little happy dance. Oh, uh, I, I was wondering where I was going, Jeff. <laughs> I was wondering where I was going. Now, notice I said make me want to. Yeah, can we get a happy but dance? But not going to. Well, I, we <laughs> no, got I'm YouTube just, viewers right now it, watching that's, this. That's and they're, exactly my point. They're yes. waiting for you to get up from this <laughs> no, table. No, they're not. No, uh, yeah, they're they not. are. No, they're not. Okay. Uh, but that said, our topic today is going to be one that I think, um, you know, it kind of gets attention, but maybe mm-hmm. is, is always like at a surface level that being diversity in the teaching workforce Hmm. and the importance of diversity in the teaching workforce in particularly in this world where for the first time in american history the majority of students in our public schools are students of color yet our teaching workforce is overwhelmingly uh, white and overwhelmingly female Yep. So um, we're going to unpack that with two amazing guests. We have uh, Dr. Travis Bristol, who's a professor of education at UC Berkeley. And we have Dr. Misha Mosley, who is the founder uh, and executive director of the Black Teacher Project. Uh, so those are heavy hitters, Jeff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some it's, heavy hitters. It is uh, exactly that. Nice. Hence, hence the happy dance. Nice. Yes. <laughs> I will not be doing a happy dance, but I'm happy dancing inside. That, because these are me too. See? Dope. We're on the same page, man. Dope. We do have a long-standing <laughs> tradition here at All of the Above of only inviting the dopest of the dope educators out there onto our show. So it uh, looks like that tradition is intact for yet another episode. Yes, indeed. Cannot wait. But at first, we're going to take a look at some headlines in education, particularly some headlines that you might have missed. Stay tuned. All right, folks, now it's time for our Do Now. Let's take a look at some headlines in education. Jeff, how are we going to do the do now today? Well, Manuel, uh, in this in this season of the United States Census, I think it's important mm-hmm. that we take account of who's in the house. Ooh. So we got a roll call today. Nice. Yes. Roll call. Yep. Let's see who's in the house. All right, Jeff. First up, we have uh, Duke University. Oh, go Blue Devils. You know, 
I almost went to Duke for my master's to get my teaching credential. I almost never met this guy right here. That, yeah, that's crazy. They offered me a, a nice big fat grant and everything. Oh man. wow, yeah. <laughs> but I like that. All those years ago, you just felt that for all of the above to happen, it was you had you had to go to Harvard. The universe had yes. spoken. Yes, indeed, <laughs> indeed. So this story pertains to a study out of Duke University, and we learned about the study through Chalkbeat, through an article by Matt Barnum. And this study out of Duke found that across the state, across North Carolina, even high schools that appear to be racially integrated actually have classrooms that are often racially segregated. The study, authored by Charles Klotfelter, Helen Ladd, Mazuna Tureeva. Oh man, I know I messed that up. I always mess up the names on here, Jeff. Mavzuna Tureeva. Is that? I think that. I mean, we we apologize. We That's do apologize. All we can say again. That's, we're we're trying our best. Yes. Yes. Um, uh, in any case, this study looked at whether students of different races and and ethnicities attended the same schools and whether those students actually sat in the same classrooms. They write that this classroom level division can be substantial. They said the author said, "quote To ignore this aspect of segregation can lead to a seriously incomplete picture." The study looked at schools across North Carolina and found that some places where schools appeared quite integrated on the surface, like in Raleigh's Wake County, actually maintained high levels of classroom-based segregation. And overall, counties that had less school segregation actually tended to have more classroom-level segregation. The researchers can't show why exactly this is the case, but one hypothesis that they put forward was that, quote, white parents seeking to have their children assigned to predominantly white classrooms may make a stronger push for those children to be included in separate classrooms in racially diverse schools. So Jeff, how surprised are you that schools that appear to be rather integrated are actually quite segregated when you look at the classrooms individually? So I have a, a mathematical question for you. Sure. Can you be negative surprised? So um, mathematically speaking, you can be negative surprised. So you, that would you be, can be the less, inverse less of than surprised. not surprised. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's that's math. whatever whatever that is rhetorically. I am yes. that. I am less as than a history not surprised. teacher. I co-sign that mathematical yes situation uh, there. But here's here's actually why. So mm -hmm. the as uh, I was reading this article. First and foremost, for me, it was very personal because it very much resonated with my own, mm -hmm. uh, you know, childhood experience, which we talked a little bit about, yeah. uh, you know, last season um, when we talked a bit about our origin stories. Right? right. And so, you know, my experience going to public schools and going to uh, in particular in high school, going to a school that was on the surface a diverse school right, right. And, and i would say more than just on the surface right but there was no racial my majority group um, yeah. in my high school it was very representative of the city overall in terms of the mix of different right. ethnicities and races and um and yet when i was going to you know ib biology class or when i went to ap chemistry class you know there, <laughs> yeah. there was a distinctly different set of uh of demographics present in that context relative to what I would see in PE class yeah, on the football field, on the basketball team, yeah. in the lunchroom, right? And so to me, it, it connected very viscerally in terms of like, yes, I know this experience and know this to be true. The, the only sad part about it is, you know, I, I, I have my 
20 year high school reunion uh <laughs> last year i think or maybe yeah. the year before i'm getting old now the mind you up there is man. the first thing to go but uh you know it's been a couple decades and right. ain't nothing changed apparently really? so mm. uh so yeah this this is not at all surprising to me i think there are many schools across the country where this is a persistent issue right which even within the diverse context that we have the forces whether they be explicit racism bias etc right. or whether they be the sort of manifestations of you know implicit bias as as it's kind of typically referred to nowadays um you see this effect right yeah. which is the sort of opportunity being most clustered with the students who bring to the table the most privilege whether that be economic racial social class whatever yeah. way um so yeah this is not surprising at all yeah. it's it's sad but not surprising yeah barnum adds that nationwide black and hispanic students or black and latinx students are less likely to be in advanced courses um just across the nation and this study seems to um basically add to our understanding and what we already know from our own personal experience and from other studies out there that just because the school on the surface looks like it might be integrated that doesn't mean necessarily that the education within it is that at all so uh, i've heard many educators out there speak about ap classes for example and how the demographics of your ap offerings at your school site should reflect the de demographics of your school and of your district however in too many places they do not so like you i was in advanced classes where i was one of the few black kids in the class but then outside of th those particular ap classes mm -hmm. like everything else was super mixed i was on the track team a whole team was black um, not literally the whole team was black but like it was a very black track team but i'd be in ap english and look around and two black students, me and uh, the homie Jarrell. So, so yeah, this isn't surprising in that sense. And hopefully we could get beyond the surface level conversation about school um, segregation and look at these equity issues within campuses just because just, you know, seeing a school in a, a, dem a demographically diverse city doesn't mean that you don't have any problems within it. And it's very important to continue those conversations all the way into the individual classes. In my personal experience at the school site that I'm at, most of the population is black and Latinx and our AP classes are do reflect that diversity for sure. However, what I have found is that simply having one or two advanced courses in the schedule really has ramifications outside of that particular course. So I have two periods of United States history and these two periods are, are really night and day from each other in terms of a, a lot of measures. And it just so happens that one of those periods, it's not an advanced uh, history class. It's a regular college prep history class. However, a lot of those students happen to be in an advanced um, other core class. So they're sort of grouped together by default because of just where that class lands on the schedule. So uh, this article, uh, the study talked about counselors as gatekeepers um, and their responsibility for making sure this uh, segregation inside the classroom doesn't happen. Uh, but I think it's even above and beyond that. I mean, it's, it's a complex issue and a complex challenge and i don't think it's just up to the counselors to to plug students in a certain way i think these conversations have to be school-wide and district-wide for sure yeah i would 100 percent agree with that there there's many layers right so from yeah. the top down from the governor's mansion right. right to the like whatever your state chief school officer is called in your state sending expectations and communicating policy to district superintendents to principals right yeah down to teachers right because some of the uh, you know I'm, I'm gonna i got love for teachers manuel but i have to say do you jeff do you some, some of the most are the principal man yeah i know i'm 
I'm just a hater. That's, yeah, that's, man. Let's just put it out there. Uh, we, we value truth here on all the above. We do. Um, no, but in all seriousness, yeah. some of the most ardent um, opponents to doing the type of thing that you're just describing, right, mm -hmm. which is not sort of um, through explicit and implicit means creating the type of inequity that's described right. in this study, some of the most ardent folks who push back against it that I've seen have been teachers, and in particular, teachers of honors and AP exactly. courses who are like, look, man, this class is moving. Like you got to yeah. be ready. We can't have these kids who aren't ready in this, you know, yeah. in this class. And it always sort of focuses on this, like they're not ready. Right. And there's, there's of course enough grain of truth in that statement to like feel real comfortable in making that argument. Right. That like, yes, it is an advanced course and we want people to be ready for it. But what is not captured in that is all the systemic ways in which we have help certain groups get ready, hindered yeah. other groups from being able to get ready, and then totally ignoring the bodies of research that show that students will rise to the level of right. expectations that yeah. we set for them and benefit from being in a class that has that type of rigor and that type of pace and those sorts of, you know, that type of complexity of learning. Um, whether you whether they come in with a 4.0 or they come in, you know, with yeah. with more average grades. Yeah, um, I just want to say, Jeff, I hope you're proud of me. Uh, we had this whole conversation. I didn't bring up College Board one time because, I mean, AP classes have a lot to do with this. And, of course, um, that is a component of the College Board. And um, I have feelings about the College Board. And I, I made it through this whole story without yeah. going on a whole thing about how the College Board is contributing to this problem here. Yes, yes, you did. Except for at the end, Congrats, I guess. Congratulations. I guess I did at the end. <laughs> All right, <laughs> yeah. next. For another episode. For another episode. Yes. All right, next up. Uh, Manuel, we got the Food and Drug Administration present mm. and accounted for. Nice. Sounds, um, is this another school lunch related story? Food you know, you would think so, being yeah. the Food and Drug Administration, yeah. but no. This has nothing to do with food or drugs. Interesting. This is one of the wildest stories we've ever talked about. <laughs> Let's hear it, Jeff. I'm laughing, but it's not funny. I'm just laughing because otherwise I'd have to cry. So uh, first of all, this, uh, this story um, comes from a story written by Russ Choma uh, in Mother Jones magazine. So uh, thank you, Russ, for bringing this wild and crazy story to us. Um, but in early March 2020, uh, the Food and Drug Administration formally banned the controversial use of electric shock devices. Yes, I said that. Electric shock devices. Wait, wait, time. They, they were allowed all the way up until 1920? I mean... That's wild. Okay, so first of all, you said 1920. Yeah, and that's not what you <laughs> like said? Like, you, you would think, yes, you would think that, like, since some backwards olden times... Yeah. No, I said 2020 as in like, Wait, what? Just, as in like this month, man. What? <laughs> yes. Yes. Wild and crazy. Electric shock devices have now been banned um, <laughs> well, from I... use on students being treated for severe behavioral issues. Yeah. Um, you're sure it was 2020. I'm 100% sure that's okay. a 2020. This it's... article like just went up. Yes. Okay. Uh, so. You know, take a deep breath, audience, with us here. Um, the practice, of course, has not been widely used across the country because what kind of ridiculous yeah, torturing monsters are in this place shocking the children? Yeah. Um, and, you know, 
of course, this policy probably comes as, as a surprise to most of our viewers, but yeah. um, it has been in use in at least one school, in particular, a school in Massachusetts called the Judge Rottenberg Education Center, which is a residential school for people with mental disabilities. Now, Mother Jones Magazine did an expose on this school back in 2007, so 13 years ago, okay? Mm. They did an expose on this school blowing up their spot, which apparently no one did anything about. Um, and they chronicled the practices being used at the school that have received little national attention. Um, the authors of that piece talk about the likelihood of that being because of the unfortunate combination of a student population that's often overlooked um, and desperate parents who feel boxed into accepting the school's methods or risk facing that their child might return home or their psychological needs or their behavior, behavioral needs may not be manageable by, by the parents at home. So officially the FDA, right? The Food and Drug Administration that yeah. bans that like regulates <laughs> your pork and chicken and right Andrew, and and like devices. drugs, right? Yeah. <laughs> um has banned the use of the school's ESDs or electronic stimulation devices, noting that with advancements of medical science, there are more treatment options available to stop self-injurious or aggressive behavior and it just sounds so benignly medical in that sense yeah. but folks they're making the kids wear backpacks with batteries and shocking the kids in school yeah backpacks what, containing what the hell 10 is going on here man what is going on so i'm on? trying to picture what this looks like and the article mentions that students were wearing backpacks containing 10 pounds worth of batteries with wires leading to their torso arms and legs allowing the stats to deliver two second long Two second long shocks the school says are similar to bee stings. First of all, two seconds sounds short, but a two second long bee yeah. sting is a lot. Secondly, I have been stung by a bee on yeah. a few unfortunate uh, occasions. That that hurts. Yeah, like, it's not a lot. fun. It's not fun. <laughs> like, a two second long sting, and I could just yes. picture staff. You know, obviously, I don't know how. I don't know. I just picture staff with like a button or whatever and just continually shocking the kids when the kids are having an episode. Yeah. What the hell? Yeah. No, I mean, that you're like, so what you just envisioned is literally what one of the former students yeah. described <laughs> in Mother Jones' expose on this school in 2007. And apparently for the last 13 years, they've just been going on shocking the kids. Okay. Wow. Now, I mean, look, I appreciate that this school is dealing with uh, you know, a population who has very extreme behaviors and needs, right. right? And, and you know, one of the former students there even admitted, like, yeah, I was wild and out of control and, like, I yeah. was doing crazy stuff, right? But, like, the, okay, they talked about it being worse than jail, okay? Uh, yeah. it, it has been that compared, the school's treatment has been compared to Abu Ghraib, yes, the horrible war crime prison that we had for wartime detainees in yeah. Iraq is being compared to that. Now, maybe in all seriousness, they're not like waterboarding the kids and stuff, right? So like, I don't know, maybe this is not as bad as that. But as soon as we're starting to, yeah. to have to talk about a school's policies being not as bad as Abu Ghraib, yeah. we are just going down the wrong path. Absolutely. I mean, these policies would be bad for a prison. They would be bad for in any context but for it being a school yeah just makes it act like a quote-unquote school i mean this just is 
is just horrible. Like, yeah. can't even like, what kind of adult would want to work in a situation like that in the first place? Yeah, I mean, this is like just some very sadistic uh kind of stuff right yeah and like i it's funny you were you know joking about 1920 but i'm like this feels to me like it would have been ethically questionable in in 1920 like right. in the era when eugenics was on the rise yeah, and yeah. you know like that even then it would have been like eh, i don't know like, yeah maybe we shouldn't do that right like this is wild that yeah. this is happening in 2020. And what's crazy is the school is pushing back, right? So <laughs> since course. 2010, the school has spent more than $431,000 lobbying in, uh, in Washington, D.C. in an effort to sway the FDA's rulemaking on the use of these shock devices and prevent legislation aimed at prohibiting the kind of aversion therapy that the school practices. That's a lot of money, Jeff. They also said they are going to appeal the FDA's decision. Of course, you don't go halfway towards electronic shock devices. You got to go all in. Like if, that's what, if you have these backpacks on your campus, you just you got to defend them to the end because there's no halfway half there's no half stepping when it comes to something this year this gigantically torturous. I mean, I guess yeah. Once you go torture, like like you got to go, gotta all, go all the you way. Can't go I half guess torture. right. Yeah. Okay. Um, speaking of which, the United Nations um, determines that the school's use of therapy violated the rights of students under the international torture conventions. When the United Nations is weighing in on the practices of a school site in the United States. That's a problem. That's a huge problem. That's a huge yes. problem. The United, not WASC, not like, yeah. you know, <laughs> right, exactly. local, just, yeah. wow. <laughs> right, yes. When, when the special <laughs> repartor, which is one of those titles, uh, which I'm not 100% sure what that actually means, but anyone, special, though. anyone who works for or is called a special repartor comes to check out yeah. your policy at your school, you're probably doing something really bad and should probably. stop. Yes. Yeah, and you know, I, even if these students are severely challenged and, you know, in all the kind of senses of the word, um, I just don't see this as even being a starting place to even have a conversation of the possibility of bringing yeah. in these backpacks. All right, we go bring in these backpacks. Here's what they do. Like, that's not just, you don't even start with that. Yeah. I'm a, I have three dogs at home and some people have those little shot collars to train dogs not to bark or whatever yeah and it's like hell no i'm not going to do that to uh, that's just me but that's a dog yeah here we're talking human beings yeah with backpacks delivering these blows yeah all right yeah. Wow, Jeff, man. Wow. um yeah that's we we got to move on man because this this um i'm i'm not okay right now with this yeah story. yeah let's let's keep it moving all right last story for our roll call see who we have who's in the house who's in the house ah the unions the unions okay so we got like uh teamsters uh united auto workers um you know unite here right the, all the big ones on? all the big ones none okay. of those though okay um all the big education ones both ah, of them. Okay. Um, this story pertains to a uh, relative partnership between the National Education Association and the um, American Federation of Teachers as it pertains to their stance on school lockdown drills. All right, so this story, which we pulled from The Guardian, an article by Rob Walker, says that the two biggest teachers unions have warned that active shooter drills should be banned for their traumatizing effect on students. Of course, uh, Jeff, you're familiar with these drills, and they've definitely increased the number of drills um, 
has increased since Sandy Hook and even before that. So these drills in some cases involve masked men with assault rifles bursting into classrooms to simulate real life gun attacks. And NEA president Lily Eccleson Garcia says, you have kids wetting their pants, you have kids crying, you have teachers crying, and you have everyone saying, this is it, I'm going to die. And then when it's over, it's like, just kidding, back to school, back to class. So the article quotes uh, teacher Abby Clements, who is a survivor of the Sandy Hook shooting. And uh, she says that putting children through terrifying actor shooter situations and making them think they are real is quote unquote obscene and perverse. So the NEA and the American Federation of Teachers have joined forces with a leading gun control advocacy group known as Every Town for Gun Safety to say enough is enough. Jeff, do you agree with the union's stance on putting an end to these active shooter drills in our schools? Well, I think my feelings on this issue are a little bit complex because in the worst manifestations of these drills i 100 percent agree so fortunately i've never worked in a district where mm -hmm. they do these like role playing right same exercise training drills where they got the swat team dudes right. with the military weaponry coming in and screaming and throwing smoke grenades and like right. kids with fake bullet wounds laying out on the floor with fake blood like to me that stuff has literally no place in school I, yeah. like honestly i don't even get how Apart from the officers, perhaps, which I don't even favor this type of policing, frankly, but uh, if the officers need to go have a practice training ground so they can desensitize, like, I got to walk by this kid with a gaping bullet wound so I can find this right, right. evil shooter, okay, I'm willing to entertain that argument, right? But, like... That, you don't need to do that with elementary school ki kids. Like You don't need to do that with high school kids. You don't need to do that with any kids. They don't need to yeah. experience that. To like we when we do fire drills, we don't actually light a bunch of stuff on fire and well, like fill the hallways with smoke and tell the kids, "This is what it's gonna be like. It's getting hot, kids." Right? Dwight, like, like we Dwight don't need does. that level. Like we practice remaining calm, going to the yeah. nearest exit, going to the like rallying points so your teacher can take attendance. Right? Like yeah. that's what we practice. And I, I, and so I've only worked in districts that practice lockdown drills, yeah. where where that type of uh, experience can happen, right? So right. We, we practice like securing the door, moving away from the windows, that sort of thing. And I think in that way, I feel much more ambivalent about the critique of those kind of lockdown drills because right. it does feel to me like even though it's unlikely and even though the school is actually a much safer place to be in terms of shootings <laughs> than right. walking down the street or your home is, uh, you know, on average, uh, it is part of the role and responsibility of school to care for the safety of young people. And unfortunately, given that we have, uh, in particular, a Republican Party that's fully entrenched on allowing people to walk around with weapons of war. Here and you stuff. go. I know, liberal Here communists talking. But if this is real talk. If you don't like it, go have a fit about it on Facebook and we can talk there. But school has a responsibility to keep kids safe and to yeah. practice routines and procedures that help with that in case of emergency just like in the midwest and south and other places they do for tornadoes just like we do for fires just like in california we do for earthquakes right right like those are big bad traumatic things and we have to do some kind of practice so that it doesn't just all go to crap when something happens yeah. right so yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, schools I've worked in have only done the lockdown drills where, you know, they make an announcement and everyone locks their doors and turns off the lights and stays quiet. And that's as far as it goes. And this story um, 
has many images of schools that go all in and do have the masked men walking around with, um, I hope, fake uh, assault rifles and fully go all into the simulation, which has, like you said, I agree, has no place at all in our schools, especially our, our elementary schools, especially when you're dealing with a population that, you know, some of whom might be too young to be able to distinguish real from simulation. And there's older or older kids who uh, would have that same challenge as well. Uh, those have no place. And the um, NEA president points out that a, a giant industry has, has come from this, a $2.7 billion industry of security experts basically offering their services for schools and districts and, you know, uh, organizing these these drills and, and everything that comes with them, which is just disgusting uh, for from my point of view. And, and yeah, I agree. We do have to have some kind of routine for if the worst were to happen. And yeah. my school, we've done lockdown drills enough. Students, teachers understand. And it's, um, it's become a routine. It's become a habit, just like a fire drill. Mm -hmm. um, but mm -hmm. if we were at our school site to have a drill that actually had masked men walking around fully simulating something, yeah, that would be that would be something that me and my students would have to walk out on because that's just not even going to yeah, happen. Yeah, no like I, I don't, I don't. I, it's hard for me to fathom the argue, the compelling argument apart from the profit motive of these companies. They're mm -hmm. like, we'll come in and we'll do all these trainings for you, right? Um, like, why, as from an educator's perspective, how does it have any educational value? Yeah, and I don't mean content learning. I just mean like educational value in terms of like the successful operation of school, right. right? So I don't think there's a case for that. And the idea that these companies are making big bucks off of these contracts with districts, with states, right, uh, is is just disturbing, right? Because they're in the business of profiting off of the sort of uh, secondary trauma of kids and adults um, who are having to, you know, kind of go through these shocking experiences. So... I'm 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 with uh, the NEA and the AFT on the like, you know these over the top ones should be 100 percent out the door. Yeah. The other levels I I yeah, I need to be convinced. Yeah yeah. All right folks, a lot in those stories man. Yeah. Shooter drills, electronic shock therapy, classroom segregation. It's a lot to sort out, Jeff. A lot going on. We can't sort yeah. it all out, but we're gonna we're gonna touch on some of the. Um, racial elements of that segregation story uh, in a way, at least in looking at teacher demographics across our school system in our seminar, which is up next. All right, so stay tuned. All right, folks, welcome to today's seminar. As I mentioned in the beginning of our episode, um, our guest today had me ready to do a little little happy dance little happy here. Dance. Um, a little it is something. yeah, that's right, that's right, man. It is uh, our distinct privilege and pleasure to have with us two incredible guests to help us unpack this topic that I think we often talk about, but also usually more at the surface level. I think this issue of diversity in the teacher workforce and why it matters so much um, in our schools to have a teacher workforce that is certainly much more diverse than it currently is, and hopefully one that represents um, our students and the communities who our public schools are actually serving now. So to that end, we have two incredible guests. We have Dr. Misha Mosley uh, of the Black Teacher Project, and we have Dr. Travis Bristol, uh, professor of education at UC 
Berkeley. Welcome, Misha. Welcome, Travis. And um, to tell you a little bit about our guests, uh, Dr. Travis Bristol um, is an assistant professor of education at the University of California, Berkeley. Um, he is a former student and teacher of the New York City Public Schools and teacher educator with the Boston Teacher Residency, Residency Program. Uh, Dr. Bristol's research is situated at the intersection of policy and practice and focuses on district and school-based practices that support educators of color, national, state, um, and local policies that impact the workplace experiences of educators of color and the intersections of race and gender in schools. In 2016, he received the inaugural Teacher Diversity Research Award from the American Association of Colleges for Teacher Education. And in 2019, Dr. Bristol received a Ford Foundation Postdoctoral Fellowship and an Emerging Scholar Award from the Comparative and International Education Society. Dr. Bristol earned his doctorate from Teachers College, Columbia University. Welcome, Dr. Bristol, to all the above. Thank you, Jeff, for having me. All right, and we also have in the house Dr. Misha Mosley, who is the founding director of the Black Teacher Project, an organization committed to developing and sustaining black teacher leadership to reimagine schools as liberated learning spaces. Dr. Mosley's research and practice focus on equity, race, and urban education, and she stays connected to teaching as an induction mentor for the residency program at Teachers College. Dr. Mosley began her career as a high school social studies teacher in San Francisco. Shout out to all my social studies teachers out there. And went on to work for the National Equity Project and the Posse Foundation. Mosley is also known nationally for her social justice stand-up comedy. Dr. Mosley earned her PhD in education from UC Berkeley. Go, Go Bears. Bears. And welcome, Dr. Mosley. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. So, um, you know, as I kind of alluded to in the intro there, part of what really intrigues us and I think has come up in many conversations we've had on this show uh, over the last few years is uh, the kind of issue of diversity in the teacher workforce when it is estimated that about 80% of the teacher workforce nationally is white and that it's about 77% female. And of course, those two figures uh, are vastly different than the actual demographics of the students that our public schools serve. Um, and those numbers have held relatively steady over the last decade. So uh, I think our big question up front is why does diversity in the teaching force matter so much? And uh, Dr. Mosley, why don't we start with you? Thanks. Well, you know, diversity in the teaching force in the United States matters because diversity in the United States matters. Um, it's important because so many folks uh, have an experience of schools that is their first foray into community building, into under, understanding themselves as part of a larger system and a larger group. So to that end, your teachers become those shepherds, those guides through your human development. And we know in the 21st century, uh, content is important, but it doesn't play the same role that it once did. And so having a diverse teaching force uh, really helps us understand that part of what we're up to in schools is that socialization, is that opportunity to connect to our humanity. And so when we have people who truly reflect the diversity of the, the United States doing that, when it comes to people of color, it allows us to counteract many of the negative stereotypes that we see 
in the media. And it also allows us to connect on a human level and lift up the expertise that traditionally is not valued in school. So that diversity helps not only the individual students who might be in particular classes, but it helps us as a society do some of the racial healing that's necessary. And Dr. Bristol, um, what are your thoughts on this? Why yeah. does diversity matter in the teaching yeah. workforce? So, I mean, very, uh, just to really echo what, uh, what Misha said, I mean, uh, we in this country have named diversity as an important principle in this, in this um, American project. Um, um, that we believe that, um, that we are stronger when we are more um, diverse. And so I think that it is, one, it, it is a, it's, it's a principle, a bedrock, right, in, in, this, in, in our attempt to, to get at what we believe America is and should be. And there is a clear body of evidence um, that, um, body of evidence that for qualitative research and in, and in qualitative research, right, that um, makes it clear that students, um, particularly Black and Latinx students, because that's where the bulk of the research is, um, persist in school, have lower rates of, of suspension, um, perform better on standardized exams, take more challenging work. Um, that, that, that happens when, when students, um, Black and Latinx students, have someone in their classrooms who look like them. And there's also some, some growing research that suggests that white students prefer, you know, having um, uh, a teacher of color. So, so both this sort of democratic idea that, that we are better and stronger when, when we're more diverse and uh, in this era of, of, of not taking science seriously, there is clear empirical evidence that for outcomes, the outcomes that we want to see in our children, having um, a, a teacher who looks like them who are black and Latinx, that, that matters. Yeah, so spoiler alert, I don't know if you each are aware that schools are highly segregated. So you have plenty of schools in our public school system where students are almost entirely one race. And, and let's take a school that might be almost entirely white, for example. When we talk about teacher diversity, I think a lot of people default to the idea of, you know, a, a black student needs to see a, a black teacher and see themselves reflected in the teachers in front of them, which is true. Um, so what would you each say to the person who's thinking, well, my kid goes to a, a mostly all white school and they have mostly all white teachers. I don't see what the big deal is here. Why, why would a, a diverse teacher workforce be important for those schools that are, are predominantly white? Do you want to go, Michelle? Oh, I, I will just say that, you know, our slogan with the Black Teacher Project is that every child deserves a black teacher. Um, and we believe that because we understand, as Travis was pointing out, this, this project that we're up to in the United States isn't simply about who's in your immediate sphere. As we become a more global society, and as we hope to live into the promise of diversity in this country, it is about having access to different perspectives and experiences. So for someone who might be in an all-white environment, having teachers of color allows them to have a human connection with someone who identifies differently than they do racially. You know, I always find it interesting that folks ask that question, but there was never a question for those of us who grew up with mostly white teachers, 
why somehow that was okay. Right. So, you know, to the, to the, you know, I'm just like, yeah. um, Preach. really? Uh. <laughs> this little integration thing keeps only happening one way. Um, and so, you know, I think as we, as we really consider what we're up to, and again, in that human development, and in terms of racial justice, if someone's growing up in a, in a racially monolithic environment, whether it's all white or all Latinx um, or all black or anything, there's always this um, a set of assumptions about the other. And school creates this opportunity for us to break down some of those myths that are built up by us not actually being in each other's company. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think to add to that, I think that, that for, for most uh, of America, the Obama uh, presidency, I think, was very revelatory in, in demonstrating the great cognitive dissonance that many white Americans had by having um, a black man be the commander in chief, a black man having the very, you know, uh, essentially um, running the country. And it makes clear sense why during the State of the Union you hear someone yell, you lie, right? Because it, 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 it was the sense that, that, um, that I've never had a space in my life where I had to respect you as an authority figure. And so, and so we'll constantly find ways to disrespect you and your office because I have not had the capacity to engage where you because I've had to sort of respect you. And so I think that, that I think you, your question, and I think the, the power of hearing that all children deserve a black teacher uh, resonates because um, in this increasingly flat and global society, um, we need all children to have access and to learn from people who do not look like them so that we can function, um, given that we are becoming more interconnected. Yeah. I mean, certainly, uh, certainly that resonates with me. And um, Dr. Mosley, it was it was probably maybe a year ago or so now, um, a, a colleague of mine and actually a woman who is uh, our senior middle school correspondent, uh, yeah. Genevieve Dubose Akinagbe, who I believe you you uh, are familiar with, um, came to work with a shirt on that said every child deserves a black teacher. And I was not previously familiar with the black teacher project, but I literally stopped in my tracks and was like, that's a dope shirt. How do I get one of those? And she was like, well, you don't know about the black teacher project. And I said, no, but I need to. So, um, you know, in, in the work that you're doing in the black teacher project, how are you helping to make that happen? Right. To, to bring to life that statement Mm -hmm. that every child deserves a, a black teacher. Mm-hmm. Well, first and foremost, we are looking at and understanding the experiences of Black teachers. So, you know, when we say that, and I'll, I'll just talk briefly about even the trajectory of our organization. When we began, we were really interested in having the Black teacher force represent the Black, te- the black population. So we're about 13% of the population, 7% of the teaching force. We said we got to get those numbers up. So if you look at our initial goals, it was really about increasing the number of Black teachers. Um, And we did that through looking at how we could sustain Black teachers, um, knowing that recruitment efforts were improving things, but people were leaving so quickly that we didn't actually feel the impact of more folks coming in. But we quickly realized that this is not about Black bodies. This is not just about numbers. And so for us, it really is about shifting power. And thinking about for every child, 
to really deserve a black teacher. Part of what's behind that is to deserve the brilliance, to deserve the energy and effort and contribution of black teachers. So we, you know, now when we talk about reimagining schools as liberated learning spaces, education has always been a path to liberation for black people. We've never just looked at the opportunities that were in front of us. We had to look beyond what was in front of us. So for us, it's not about whether or not your child has a black teacher in their classroom, how can you feel the impact of a black teaching force? So really thinking about the impact of online learning, looking at what it means for black teachers to lead education reform so that everyone can feel the impact, even if that person's not standing in front of you. We can reimagine what school it looks like these days. What does it look like in the 21st century? So you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in this moment in the midst of a retreat with some of our Black teacher leaders, and what they are doing is reimagining these spaces so that not only every child de can deserve a Black teacher, but every child can be impacted by the brilliance and the diversity of a Black teaching force. Fantastic. Um, now, Travis, you're among the nation's leading scholars in the um, when it comes to researching the the problems associated with having that lack of diversity in our in our teaching force. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what drives you to continue with that work and and why should states and districts um, take aggressive action here? Yeah, I think I mean many things drive me. Thank you for the question. Um, one, you know, as a former in, in the introduction, you talked about. Uh, um, uh, you know, my work as a former teacher in New York City. Um, and I think that th there was this clear sense when I was teaching in New York that, um, that students were primarily drawn to me or exclusively drawn to me because I was, you know, a black male teacher. And I think that, that the, my experience has been that the novelty wears off in like the second week, right? <laughs> that at some point, like you actually have to know your content and know how to teach that content. Um, and and um, what many of my colleagues, I think, failed to realize was that because I went, I attended a 12-month uh, uh, teacher preparation program that had a rich clinical experience, that it, that it was my capacity to draw on them my ability to draw on those lessons um, that really made me an, an effective teacher. And so one of the things that, that I, that I tried to, that I try to sort of push is to um, move beyond like why black teachers are, are leaving the profession, but really to sort of think about what are the things that are, that are happening, the experiences, the skills that they need in order to show up uh, and to be, be present that, that black teachers are masterful at their craft. And so I think that I, what drives me is to really try to um, reframe the narrative that folks, my, my students weren't drawn to me just because I was a black male teacher, right? But because I had a certain set of skills and resources and tools that I learned in my preparation program. And that's what black teachers are bringing um, to their programs. Or if they're con or if they're attending, you know, all sort of programs where, where they don't necessarily get those experiences, thinking about um, alternative professional learning experiences, right, that can support them in their school. So those are some of the things that, that drive me. Great. Um, I think uh, both of you, I've heard uh, in various ways speak compellingly around the issues of, you know, not just uh, sort of 
hiring uh, black teachers, but also the issues we have with retaining uh, black teachers. And uh, I'm wondering if you can share some insights on what you think we, you know, we really need to do differently, not only from sort of the like HR perspective and like getting people in, but also the, the perspective of, you know, retaining folks in the classroom, because not only is that novelty wearing off after two weeks, but a lot of our new teachers are wearing off after, you know, two years. Um, so how do we, how do we kind of change systemically what we're doing to recruit and retain um, black teachers? And maybe uh, Dr. Mosley, we can, can start with you. Um, you know, a lot of it in, in teaching, we always say, begin with the end in mind, where are you going? And so I think we have to think about the sustained black teacher, even, you know, we've shifted our language from retention to sustainability, because retention is about holding on, and sustainability is the quality of folks staying. So a sustained black teacher is someone who is deep in their craft, deep in their practice, right? Um, and so we have to evolve with the times. First and foremost, we have to look at teachers as whole human beings in the same way that we want to look at the whole student. And so for us, one of the foundational pieces of our professional development offering is to be able to think about self-care as professional practice. We're asking teachers to do more and more because school is set up for a particular type of young person and very particular conditions in their home lives. And for many of our teachers of color, they're working with students who have home lives that are not compatible with how school is structured, whether it's how their parents are working, you know, anything like that. And so really understanding how we take care of teachers as whole human beings. We offer professional development in racial affinity. And right now, there's a lot going around about racial affinity groups. Everyone thinks that's the new hotness, kind of like restorative justice. People kind of read the article and not the book or, you know, skim the headlines <laughs> and don't actually get in to know what's real, right? And so racial affinity is nothing to play with. There is an intentionality around understanding the power of learning in racial affinity and, more importantly, of healing in racial affinity. So if we're talking about the sustainability of teachers of color, we have to heal from internalized oppression. In order to become a teacher of color, we have mastered an inequitable system. And if we're not careful, that mastery will be our undoing. That cognitive dissonance is also what drives people out because they're not, they're, I'm not doing right by the kids in front of me. I, I'm, I'm not feeling okay about it. And so allowing folks that time to heal and allowing folks to have real conversations about race, not only in racial affinity, but in racial affinity and across racial difference, I think are, are key aspects of professional development. Yeah, I, I, I think that, that the, um, we are seeing a slow and important move uh, to think more expansively about uh, the life course of a teacher, for teachers of color. I think that for a long time, the narrative has been let's just focus solely on recruiting them into the profession uh, without thinking about supporting, developing, and retaining them uh, in the profession. Um, I think we have, we have focus, um, you know, to the exclusion of recruitment without thinking and recognizing that actually retention is, is the biggest issue that, that, you know, Jeff, you talked about, you know, both you and I went through the Rockefeller 
Brooke Brothers program, right? So you've had many, this is a, a, a foundation that, that gave folks money to, to folks of color to go through, um, uh, you know, to, to get a credential in, in teaching that in many ways, lots of these programs have paid off, right? Like these recruitment efforts have paid off, but we, we took our eye off of how do we get people to to to, be, to sustain and, and to thrive? So I think that people are really thinking about that, like the kinds of work that, that Misha is doing, the kinds of work that other folks are doing, to think about um, uh, um, supporting folks and sustaining folks. And I think there's a growing movement to also think about how we're organizing schools, right? So teachers do not leave their students, they leave their principals. And so I think they're, and, and because we, we concentrate teachers of color in the most challenging schools, that's probably the primary driver for why they, they leave at a higher rate. And so I think that, that we are in this country begin to, to think about in, that to improve the conditions for teachers and teaching and for students to learn, we also have to also think about principals and, and leading. So there's some interesting work that's happening now that's thinking about how you develop and support principals who can support, who can create the working conditions for teachers to teach, who will create the, the classroom environments for students to learn. So we're, we're, we're thinking, we're having, we're thinking more expansively, of not only about recruitment, but also about support and retention. All right, so now, aside from sustaining or recruiting and retaining um, teachers of color, uh, for a lot of folks, a lot of folks in maybe the policy space uh, are, are looking at it as a numbers game. So, like, we got to get the numbers up. We got to get the numbers up or these percentages up. And one one area that's overlooked is the, the sustaining those teachers. But another area that's overlooked is just the reality that if you have a higher number of teachers of color in America's classrooms, but if they're doing the same stuff that in reinforcing the same oppressive uh, practices that see so many of our black and brown students being um, excluded and and being um, traumatized within our school system, um, that might not be a, a whole lot of good happening there. So how do we simultaneous, simultaneously try to build up the diversity within the teacher workforce while also making sure that the um, black and brown teachers, teachers of color aren't just being trained to uphold the same harmful practices that have long existed in America's schools. Um, Misha, let's start with you on that. Okay. Um, I think a lot of it is about uh, uncovering truths around how, how oppression shows up, how dominant culture um, practices show up and what we do. Um, much of our work in the Black Teacher Project is around healing from internalized oppression so that we're not perpetuating the same, um, uh, the same harm. Um, as I said before, we've survived a system, and if we weren't critical of that system, we'll then say to students, do what I do to be successful. So, you know, it is in ideally in the preparation programs, we know that Many of them are slower to move, so it will be professional development that often leads the way. Um, but really un unmasking what that looks like, really examining um, teacher moves and practices. That's a lot of what we do with some of our teacher leaders. Why are you making the choices you're making around grading, around how you're organizing students, and really fundamental things? And what do you believe to be true relative to those teacher moves? So helping people gain some awareness, but I think one of the most important things and why we talk about liberated learning spaces is we have to create professional development experiences for teachers that are actually anti-oppressive. 
folks have to feel it first before they can actually know what to do in their classrooms. So if our professional development looks the same way all the old classrooms looked, this, there's going to be that cycle. So for us, we really double down on thinking about how do we create a learning experience for adults that is liberatory and that does um, interrupt oppressive practices so that they can feel it, internalize it, and share it with their students. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, we can't just assume that because you look like the students that you um, don't bring the same narrow deficit worldview that you were trained in or educated in or live in, right? Um, and so everyone needs, you know, ongoing professional learning to um, support how they show up and how they view their students in the classroom. So I think that there's 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 a lot of work happening in in the in the in-service space. I think that that there's not as much work that's happening that shouldn't be happening in the pre-service space. So um, I don't have the exact percentages, but the, the percentages of um, uh, faculty or teacher educators of color, right? It's actually smaller than the, than the, the national average of, of teachers. And so, you know, what you have is uh, students, you know, students of color um, who, are, who are in teacher preparation programs, um, where the content uh, is in many ways still part of the canon that's being taught by folks who bring um, narrow, similar de deficit worldviews of people of color, and then they're teaching uh, pre-service teachers of color who are then expected to go and do what? Well, if this is what I've been taught in my own program, how am I supposed to think of something else? So I think that the work that's happening in the in-service space that, that, that Misha is leading, uh, that, that that work should also um, trickle up, if you will, uh, to, before folks get to um, schools and should be happening in the, in the pre-service space. Yeah. So I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, because I think in many ways, when when people think about this issue, it's sort of easy to imagine like, a, you know, a, a racist person in HR who like just doesn't want to hire teachers of color or, or maybe these sort of overt examples that might be barriers to why we haven't yet achieved uh, the the type of diversity and, and all of the, the fullness of that term that, that we've spoken about today um, that we would hope to see uh, in our schools. And um, uh, Dr. Bristol, I know you've done a, a bunch of work with districts from uh, from the East Coast to the West Coast, um, you know, uh, helping districts make some changes uh, you know, structurally to, to address this problem. And I'm wondering if you can, can both tell us a little bit about that work and also like, what are the barriers that maybe are not obvious, right? That, that are getting in the way, um, of schools and districts, uh, getting to the place we'd want them to get to. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I started some of this initial work when I was in Boston, working with the Boston teacher residency program. I started, I think in 2013, uh, this sort of pilot group of, of men of color who were in our program, um, both graduates and current teacher uh, teacher candidates. And one of the things that that um, that I tried to do was to say that yes, that that that, that you know, there these schools in which these men are working in are toxic and are pushing them out. And while they may decide to leave their schools. Um, 
or they may decide to stay in their schools because they want to support children. Like they, they need something to be sustained. And so this professional learning community that I, that I designed was something to think about. We need to fix the organization, but we also need to give people tools in the moment, right, to, to navigate those spaces. And so what, what um, and, and some of that learning can come from someone who might be a bit more senior to you. And so what Boston Public Schools did, they, they took some of that work and then they designed an, an effort called the Male Coaching Executive Seminar Series, I think is what it was called, uh, in, in BPS. There's also a similar program for, um, for women of color. Um, Right around the time that Boston was doing that work, the folks in New York City were also about to launch this teacher recruitment initiative called NYC Men Teach. And one of the things I learned in Boston was that you couldn't, it wasn't enough to just recruit people, you actually needed to like support them. Uh, and so one of the really powerful things that New York City has done with NYC Men Teach was they, they began this mentoring program where people of color learned right, how to support, uh, in that case, pre-service teachers of color. The learning from that work in New York has influenced the kind of the work that I'm doing now in Compton. Um, and what I learned is that it's not enough to, yes, we want to create professional learning spaces for teachers, um, um, but if teachers return to schools that are so toxic because of poor administrative leadership, then they will they might be sustained through that year, but they may not be sustained in the profession. And so this work in Compton that I'm trying to do is it's, um, um, we're working with administrators and teachers, right, to think about this sort of reimagining of the school organizational context where leaders get some skills around how to lead. Teachers are learning alongside their, their, their leaders um, and, and teachers are thinking about their practice to support student learning. Dr. Mosley, I'm wondering if you can weigh in on this as well. You know, as we think about um, as we think about trying to enact the the work of diversifying our teacher force and our schools and in, in service of our students, what are maybe some of the the, the barriers that might not be obvious uh, to you know to to folks in our audience? Well, I think um, you know one of the one of the largest barriers has to do with the process of even becoming a teacher. So in the Bay Area, we see countless teachers of color who are stuck in that early stage of teaching where they're unable to pass particular exams or complete particular coursework um, because of financial reasons and because what they bring to the classroom is not tested. And so across race, if you ask teachers about the, the exams that they have to take to become a teacher, everyone will tell you that that test has nothing to do with what I actually do every day. So a huge barrier is valuing what we say we want. So what happens if the exams actually are testing for cultural competence? What if they're actually testing for pedagogical content knowledge in a way that is actually serving the students from the districts that, you know, the, the, the teachers would be teaching in. So, I mean, I, I can't say enough about testing as a barrier um, both from a financial place and from a content place um, and what we're hearing from, from teachers. Um, and then there's this piece around, you know, what Travis was saying, the environments where people land. We get phone calls this time of year um, where people are asking, can you help us get more black teachers? And the first thing we say is, let's talk to who you have. Would they recommend that someone come there? And if one, if you don't want us to talk to them, 
Well, they're real busy. Mm-hmm. They're real busy hating on your school, right? So, <laughs> you know, how do we create uh, communities for folks to, to come into? Um, you know, even if folks are able to navigate the systemic barriers, there's also that barrier of like, will I feel held in this place? Will I, is this a positive work experience for me? Knowing that teaching is already difficult. But I would say those exams, um, and just not valuing what teachers of color bring. And we know, you know, what gets measured, you know, lets us know what we, what, what, what matters. So. And I, I should say that, that, that we also can't take our eye off of what's happening in K-12 schools where we see large numbers, disproportionate numbers of Black and Latinx children being pushed out of schools. And so you can't create a pipeline into the profession if you are, if you are shutting off yeah. this option from, from many students in their K-12 experience because you're disproportionately pushing them out when compared to their white and Asian peers. So we can't, we, we also have to think about harsh disciplinary practices in K-12 schools. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think you both pointed yeah. out that there's there's a litany of challenges and um, it won't be easy in terms of uh, boosting the diversity in the teacher workforce and having those teachers be um, teachers who can help students feel school as a liberating space that will help empower them into their future. But uh, we're wondering if you if we could maybe end with where are you seeing some success in this effort and what can other schools and districts learn from the successes that you've seen? How about Dr. Mosley, we start with you. Um, some of the successes I've seen are in programs where folks are, are growing their own. Um, there's a commitment, you know, as Travis just said, folks are looking in the K-12, looking in high schools and creating programs for high school students to get interested in teaching. So, you know, you'll see high school students going to kindergartens and, and teaching and just getting that experience. Summer programs for college students that allow them some teaching experiences. Um, when folks are actually looking at the relationship between the local schools and who might be coming from their K-12 systems, what are the local higher ed? schools and really starting to, to lean into some of those teacher preparation programs and, t- and get folks excited about it. And then the other piece I would say um, where folks are um, being responsible with racial affinity groups and how people are naming those opportunities to interrupt uh, racial injustice also let the teacher know this is a place that at least is talking about race. And too often people wait until people of color to show, show up to talk about race. So I will often tell schools, like, you can have an all-white school and still talk about race. And so that, we know that when folks are actually having those conversations about racial justice and, and equity relative to what's happening in their schools, that draws folks and, and, and sustains folks even as they're trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think you'd asked this earlier, this question earlier, and I think I kind of got off on a bit of a tangent. Um, I haven't been teaching in a while, so I kind of get excited and just begin to ramble. So, but but I, I think that that states that I think they're doing this work. Um, the council, of, the council of chief state school officers (CCSSO) many years ago had assembled a group of ten states. Uh, the, the, the working group is no longer in existence, but they they created a working group of ten states 
um, that that had um, set ambitious goals around like doubling their teacher educator workforce. <clears throat> the, the initiative was called the Diverse and Learner uh, Ready Teacher Initiative, DLERT. Um, and and I think one of the states that I think that had had one of the most ambitious did some of the most ambitious work was the state of Massachusetts. Um, and what Massachusetts did, what the senior leaders in Massachusetts did was before they began sort of working and telling districts to create all of these efforts, they did some internal work. They did some internal, uh, they started with themselves, um, reflecting on some of their own practices that did not create diversity in the building, um, um, how they were describing uh, uh, jobs, you know, their, their work or presenting their job descriptions, writing up their, their job descriptions. Um, so after they, they did some internal work, I think then they landed on a set of robust um, policies. Um, and then that, those robust policies came with, um, with, uh, with resources because resources matter, monetary resources matter. And what the state did was they began to engage several districts uh, around uh, um, who believe they have the capacity, right, to create some, some teacher diversity efforts. One such district is Cambridge Public Schools, Ramon de Jesus, um, who, I forget Ramon's title, but who's really leading that work is because he has, in many ways, cover from the state and cover from his superintendent and resources to, to, to have hard conversations with, with all teachers across the, the district to really look at hiring practices and, and bias in hiring and where teachers are being pushed out. Um, I mean, that, that, that kind of work that, that this one district is doing, I think is in some ways connected to um, what is happening at, at the state and I think can become one example of, of a state and a district, right, who is, who uh, we might turn to uh, as we want to build out some of these efforts. Well, uh, you know, I, th I think speaking uh, for Manuel, I feel confident in saying we could we could keep this conversation going forever. But uh, I think the YouTube and podcast uh, gods would frown upon us for having a, a, a three hour episode. Um, but I really want to thank our two guests today. Um, we have Dr. Misha Mosley of the Black Teacher Project, uh, Dr. Travis Bristol, professor of education at UC Berkeley, two incredible minds uh, in general and two incredible minds especially on this topic um, of diversity in the teacher workforce and what we can and should uh, do to, to get there and what we are doing um, to, to get there, to help create the schools that our, that our students deserve. So thank you, um, Dr. Mosley, Dr. Bristol, for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure. Indeed, indeed. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Take care. All right, folks. Next up is our class dismissed. All right, folks, it's time for Class Dismissed, where we like to give a shout out to folks doing wonderful things in the world of education. Jeff, what do we have for today's Class Dismissed? Well, Manuel, um, today we have an interesting art exhibit that has popped up at a high school uh, in Watts. Um, and the high school is David Starr Watts. Jordan High School, uh, a fantastic little school in Watts. And uh, they debuted uh, recently um, a new set of murals in their school library, mm. which are not only beautiful from an artistic perspective, but also really capture a lot of the kind of major historical figures, some, some contemporary, mm. some you know more from the past, um, that speak to the kind of beautiful mixture of black 
and brown cultures and histories uh, that make up the community of Watts. And mm. also, I think, are really fascinating because the school's namesake, uh, namesake David Starr Jordan, um, was actually a, a proponent of eugenics uh, back in the day, right? So one of those one of those That's cases, not a good thing, where, yeah, not a good thing. And there's actually um, also in the school's library a historic piece of art that is, uh, in many ways, problematic in all the ways you might think of. Um, that speaks to David Starr Jordan's wow. sort of you know white man greatness. Yeah. Um, that that currently can't be like painted over or done away with because it's a, like a historic art landmark or something so wow. they have on the new walls in the library painted these gigantic beautiful colorful murals representing all kinds of uh, great figures so of course uh, you know barack and michelle are represented right, right. um aoc made the made the Woo. cut uh florence griffith joiner who was from watts uh, is there and has an elementary school named after her down the street is there um jaime escalante is there oh. sonia sotomayor all kinds of um, you know noteworthy yeah. figures. Um, Celia Cruz uh, is on there as well. So um, really great stuff. Uh, the district, Los Angeles Unified, actually just put out a recent video, um, which uh, we'll show you here. Now, Jeff, some of the folks are listening to the podcast and they're wondering, huh, how could I see that video? The YouTube people are watching it right now and I can't see it. Where do they go, Jeff? Uh, they go to aotashow.com, and you can find the links to all of our stuff. Or you can go to youtube.com slash all of the above. All one word. Very all good. One word. Very good. That's right. Jeff, those murals look fantastic. Yeah, they're they're beautiful. They're like larger than life, right? Because they're like 14 feet tall. Yeah. Um, I was was there for an event in the library recently, um, and it's just it's a beautiful space for kids. And in this day and age where we think libraries don't matter, right? Um, you know, go go check out the library, uh, you know, yeah. at at Jordan High School, and then see what you think about libraries not mattering. That's lovely. Nothing like a lovely school library that is a responsive safe space where schools could see themselves reflected not just in this case in the murals but i'm sure in a lot of the texts that are offered there at that school library so shout out to everybody involved in that project that is super super dope all right folks so that brings us to the end of this episode and as you already know you can find all of our content at aotashow.com and if you've enjoyed what you've listened to or seen um, please consider rating us and reviewing us we would greatly appreciate it and until next time We'll see you.